So I've been trying to think like, how do I even, how do I even start this session, man? And I was thinking, you know, we'll, we'll do it like what we always do. And I'm going to say, let's just start with a story. Let's do it. So did I ever tell you about my first interaction at Hilltop? Um, well, the one I could think of was when you first met me, right? I'm like, well, when was that? Is that when the, uh, is that when we went to the bar? <laughs> no, that was when we were, we were on the playground. Oh, okay. Gotcha. gotcha. But, <laughs> no, when was the, it wasn't me, apparently. What's your first story of Hilltop? Yeah. Okay. So man, my first interaction at Hilltop, I, I had just finished a road trip across the country. Um, probably about like 12 hours prior to that. And, and I remember it was, the, it was in the dead of winter. I had just loaded up like my tiny little Honda Civic, which has great gas mileage. So if you're looking for a car out there, everyone, do that one. Um, so I was coming from New York. I only had like one bag, a suit or two. And uh, I remember mixing like my pre-workout with my coffee and that was such a bad idea. <laughs> I remember just driving like 18 hours straight. Like, this is great. Um, but I crashed the next day. But anyways, I saw some wonderful, great sights. And I remember my first day and I walked in and I literally walked in. I was like, yo, what the hell did I get myself into? I have worked in previous childcare centers, but this one, you know, a couple were like on a college campus. And then, as you know, um, you know, working with my mom, you know, she has a family childcare home. So coming to a center, center, like with four walls, it's kind of, it was a little different. Plus Hilltop is Reggio inspired. And I wasn't really familiar with that approach. And I just remember walking down the halls and I saw children like writing on the walls. And I was like, oh my God, like that's, it's making me cringe. And uh, I remember seeing like children painting on themselves and I froze and I was like, oh my goodness. And then finally I saw like children pouring milk out like for themselves with this big container. And I was like, yo, WTF. I remember thinking like my mom, my educators, they would have had a heart attack here, dude. I, uh, well, I know, or at least I think you're not the only one, especially walking into Hilltop for the first time. It could be pedagogically jarring. Let's say that. I'm going to coin that phrase there. And you know, and I know for my class, or at least my former class in the raindrop room, I know when people would walk in and see what we gave toddlers the parameters to do, that face of just like, what is going on here? <laughs> Dude, absolutely. Um, I, I don't think it was your first room, like the first room I actually went to, but I remember coming across a child who was standing in like one of the doorways and they like just looked up at me and they're like, yo, who are you? I was like, oh, okay, you know, my name's Mike, who are you? And she was like, oh, my name is such and such. And I said, oh, what a pretty name. Aren't you just like a, a cutie pie? And I remember the, the educator in that room immediately snapped at me. It was like, oh, well, we don't say that here. And the child was like, yeah, you know, looking up with her like blue eyes. She was like, yeah, I'm, and I'm also intelligent and articulated and cool. And she just like marched away. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, and it's, and, and honestly, like when I hear that um, from educators, it makes me cringe, you know, and, and as someone who's helped architect that aspect of our culture, or at, at least at Hilltop and conversing with new people and reiterating the message year after year with current staff so i'm glad like that you were taken back by it like we, we did some good you know and 
and and it's really it's really interesting with that cute piece and other aspects and, and maybe we'll get into it later um really just identifying our what what we're saying because a lot of our language is genderized there's a lot of ownership that's in our language and and you know and there's not a whole lot of recognition of like people that have come before you for children to think about and and you know we'll, maybe we'll dive into that later um you know what we say with our words and our body it's and the inflection of our voice has a strong impact on children's development and like everything we do it's essentially modeling right and how we become my favorite I think my my uh, my motto for the year is how we talk with children becomes their inner voice. All right, y'all. So everyone knows that child care is essential. We're some of the most influential people out there. Yet we are often overworked and underpaid. So how can you work full time, have hobbies, show your friends and family love, self care? and also fine-tune your skills and grow more in-depth? That's where we come in. These NAPCasts are designed to help you learn on the go, hear another perspective, spark debate, <laughs> heck, even agree with us, but honestly remind you that you're not alone. We live in a complex world, so allow us to challenge your perspective. So are your headphones in? Did you turn the volume up? All right now, good. Let's get it. I like that. So, yo, we done one at night. Um, we done one on the weekends. We done one on race and culture. Um, we've recorded one while sipping on some whiskey, you know. But all of the napcasts we've done, um, out of all of them, this one actually kind of makes me a little bit nervous. You know, this one we're doing live, a, a live recording. So there's no chance to edit out our curse words, no chance to read <laughs> my email notification starts going off. You know, this is it. And we got what? Looking at the list, we got about 40 people listening. So this is, this is kind of cool. Yeah, it's, uh, it's yeah it's a little it's taken me back a little bit and it's it's kind of hard to to not want to try to be you know perfect or whatever but uh obviously doing it with you mike it makes it that much more easier so <laughs> so welcome to napcast everyone a podcast produced by hilltop children's center in seattle washington on the traditional lands of the first people of seattle the duwamish people uh for for the people on with us right now you're, you're you're finally getting to put a name to the face, you know, a face that hasn't shaved or got you know my locks twisted in about seven months. <laughs> but I'm your Afro Caribbean co-host, Mike Brown. My pronouns are he and him. Hello, everyone, and out there in the YX Zoom world, we're happy to have you with us. I'm extremely excited, and I'm your other co-host, Nick Terrones. I can't grow facial hair very well. But I did have a mullet up until a few weeks ago because of quarantine. Mm. I will say it was very becoming of my identity as a Native and Mexican-American heritage. And my pronouns are he and him. You know, that's funny because, you know, our people come from a long line of beautiful, long hair. And, you know, just thinking about the story that I, I just told, you know, we also come from a long line of of natural storytellers. This is what we do. And thinking about 
this session and just thinking about stories, right? I feel like our stories are so much more than just an avenue to educate. It's it's a way to help empower one another, to engage, to find meaning, and to move us to become more empathetic, to to be more generous, to give us strength. You know, stories for our people is is how we've always survived. And I remember I did an interview with, uh, and I'm only bringing this up because I see her name on my chat, but I did an interview with Natasha from Childhood uh, childhoodyears.org. And we talked about how we can preserve culture through education and language. Mm. Um, and really language is one of those cultural pieces that we can uphold and we can strengthen and, and we can use as a source of strength. So I, I wanna talk and focus our talk today on language. The language we use, the language we don't use with each other, with children and, and with families. Yeah, yeah, Mike, and I was, I was really happy to hear that you wanted to dive into this topic with me, and especially at this uh, in this opportunity that we have. Uh, language has always been like real fascinating to me individually, especially this language we speak, English. You know, it's kind of a lot of nonsense. It's like this amalgamation of a lot of different European languages mashed into one. And you know, only speaking for myself, it has forever it forever has encouraged me to sort of like contemplate why we say the things we do to whom or who, whom, see right there. Yeah. And, <laughs> uh, you know, who we say it to and, and why we accept some things and not other things in the language. And, you know, now I, and I hope and I encourage everybody to really like, let's bring that focus to our work. And when we do, I think it becomes even more apparent that we strive to be cognizant of our word choices and essentially, you know, watch our language. You know, and, and how we absorb language just in general is kinda it's kinda neat too. Yeah. It, uh, you remember you remember the character uh Osmosis Jones? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was for that a couple of years ago. I, what was it, Eddie uh Chris Rock. Chris Rock, right? In but you know, this question has nothing to do with osmosis Jones. I just was trying to figure out a way to use the word osmosis. Right. Um, but in all seriousness, language is something that we, you know, that we absorb through osmosis, mm -hmm. and it's something that we don't really necessarily think about. And I think because we don't think about it, right? Because we don't do that, we often take it for granted. So. That's kind of where I just want to start, you know, the language we absorb. So can you talk to me about your growth around your use of language? So talk to me everything about like growing up in a dual language household, your rejection of it, uh, any cool ways that you might have experienced or were exposed to vocabulary. And just, I guess, uh, can you recall any language uh, and the construction of meaning in your social world? In your social world, how did that affect you growing up? Yeah. Uh, well, and I know we kind of touched on this a little bit in some other episodes. Um, it was only my mom who spoke Spanish, and she definitely did her best to, you know, give me that gift and really get get me to know it and understand it. Um, I, but I grew up in LA in the '90s when I had a, I had a at a young age, and I had a first row seat to a lot of racial tension and strife and especially at school, you know, kids play these things out from the larger macrocosm. And, um, and that certainly happened on the play yard. And 
you know, through that experience, I learned that speaking Spanish just wasn't a desired trait. And, and I was talking with my mom about this and, and I guess, and I don't remember it quite uh, very well, but I guess in kindergarten, I was placed in an ESL class, even though I was only an uh, English only speaker and I was there for a bit. And I remember, and my mom said like, you know, she had asked me how school going and I was like, Oh, it's so easy. I'm helping all the other kids. And, you know, a lot of um, all this. And so my mom was intrigued and, and she looked into it and, you know, she looked into it further and it turns out like I was basically put there because of my last name, Terrones. You know, it was probably too Mexican for the school system and something more common. Like, you know, I'm sure the school gave the benefit of the doubt to my friend, Scotty Gomez. Right. And I, you know, I can't recall it, but probably not like my mom, the rejection of my family's language. You know, I can tell you now that I regret it. And I know my mom carried a sense of sadness about it as well. Mm-hmm. And we've talked about it since. And, you know, we now have our, our little uh, check-ins where, where we can, where she isn't still trying to teach me as a grown up, And it's been really great. Um, and, you know, I wrote about it last year in a, uh, in a, in a, in a blog, I think, for a hilltop, hmm. where in my childhood, I I did my best to make sure people identified me as Native American rather than Mexican, right, hmm. or than the Spanish-speaking person. Um, and I did all I could to sort sort of like distance myself from that. And essentially, I just saw my identity as a Spanish-speaking person as a detriment to, and a social liability to my to my sort of social currency at school. And, and now though, I hold both things up very, uh, you know, very in, in high regard. Yeah. Just, just you saying that and you bringing up your, your mom, you know, growing up, my mom was like the ultimate hustler. She had jobs mm-hmm. as I'm trying to think she had jobs as a nurse tech. She worked at Builder square, which is like a home Depot. Um, type joint and then she was a project manager she had her own child care center like we talked about in um episode eight i think episode eight i got i get it from my mama yeah the substitute kindergarten teacher like like i said she was an ultimate hustler yeah you know what not a lot of people know this but she taught french and french was actually her first language so kind of hearing you say how you didn't want to speak spanish growing up really hit songs man because you know, French, because that was her first language, was actually my first language that I spoke. And it could have stuck with me had it not been for one interaction, my mom tells me, one interaction she had with my educator growing up. So the the childcare uh, I was in kept telling my mom that I had developmental delays, just like, you know, they were saying you with ESL. Um, but, you know, I was having developmental delays and that I was actually in desperate need of speech therapy if I had like any chance to succeed. Spoiler alert, I didn't have one. <laughs> um, you know, but when you're learning two languages at once, it just had me, pro- you know, processing a little bit slower than my peers. But from my mom's perspective, you know, she was like, damn, you know, not only are we immigrants, but we're black, <laughs> right? We're black in the 90s. You know, we're in poverty. Life is already so stacked against us. Yeah. 
So in her head, she was like, yo, let me switch it up and only speak English to him. So she stopped speaking French to me in hopes I can learn English English a little bit quicker. But man, I'm just thinking in, in retrospect, can you imagine me with this smile, these locks, you know, ability to change a diaper now, you know, now I'm, I'm working with Todd's and knowing English, French and Spanish, I, I would have oh, been. You'd be a hell of a <laughs> European all pair. There you go. I could have been in Europe. <laughs> But uh, just hearing, you know, what you're saying got me really thinking about the power of language and, and how this world can be represented in in an unlimited number of ways. So just thinking about you and I, we represent like this non-traditional, non-Westernized ways of being and living. And I don't know about you, but I'm not going to lie. I'm feeling a little bit robbed, you know, robbed of part of my culture of where you know, part part of my culture, just because of what an educator told my mom and how she weaponized language against her. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even a couple of weeks ago, I was triggered when, when this topic actually came up at Hilltop at work. Yeah. Well, and, you know, yeah, like that really hit me home at, uh, right in the heart when you're saying thing like you were robbed and, you know, and, and it's interesting how that can happen on such a, you know, on, on a small scale and then on larger scales of how aspects of children's culture and family culture can just be sort of stripped away from them. But, um, you know, I, I'm intrigued, Mike. What, what's the, what happened at Hilltop? What's the team, my brother? What happened? Um, it, it was basically like we were going through our 30-hour basic training. Mm-hmm. And it was probably halfway through that I really got pissed off because we were talking about using, um, you know, you work there, but we were talking about using a framework to see if a child uh, might need like additional outside developmental support. And we were talking about how could we suggest to parents that their child might need to see a specialist or a therapist. Mm -hmm. And just, you know, from my own story, I got upset for a multitude of reasons. You know, first of all, I felt like we were just operating with a ton of assumption here. You know, we're assuming all children and families are well enough to hire occupational therapists, you know? And then secondly, I was just, I just felt like we were operating from such a white culture. And I I bring this up a lot, but people are like, oh, what does that mean? And when I talk about white culture, I'm, I'm really referring to the way that we act, the way that we behave, the way that we think, we know and we do. And when you're an organization like ours that is ser- serving predominantly white affluent communities, once again, we're changing that, you know, we're, we're, it's not totally white anymore, but when you serve that predominant community and you're using a framework that is white as hell and, and you're operating from that white lens and, and you finally have a child of color in your care, but you're still operating from this white culture I just feel like you're setting that child up for failure for additional hardships in life. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. I believe there's a potential in that to be a possibility for sure. And I, yeah, I definitely get where you're coming from. You know, what about like factors to mitigate such impacts? Um, you know, and just playing the role of a critical friend here, just kind of thinking. Do that well. Yeah. <laughs> You know, you know, won't there be many other factors that like provide the hardships that are far more detrimental in the long run, and, and you know, than the sort of maybe well-intended research base, albeit 
white centered practices, you know. Uh, mm. When you said friend, I, I, I literally thought you were going to break out a song like you got a friend in me from Toy Story. <laughs> uh, but no, I appreciate the critical friend part. Um, there are factors, of course, but as I sat there listening, I was I was really seeing just like parallels from my own experience. Yeah. Because like I had just said, I was referred to a speech therapist and, and was also referred to occupational therapist later on. And like my white educators were were concerned that I was having attachment issues. And luckily I had someone from the community who was also an educator and, and like stepped in, thank goodness, and was like, nah, 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 this child doesn't have any issues, right? He just knows it's disrespectful in our culture to make eye contact for, for long periods of time with authority figures. Cause that's yeah. how I was raised. And, and that's why I'm kind of getting on with this next thought. It's not just the language that we speak verbally or non-verbally. Um, that can be detrimental. It's it's the language we absorb and the language that informs our way of being as an educator, which can also be harmful. So how do we break the cycle, man? <laughs> <laughs> All right, here comes the answer that'll cure everything. No. Yeah. yeah. Oh, if only it was that easy. Well, you know, we talked about this uh, a little while ago. And I mean, we often touch on it, I feel like, when we're together um, on our own time offline. And this was one of the talking points that got me excited about this language uh, aspect, uh, specifically when it comes to the idea of assessment. Mm -hmm. I, the first thing I want to point out is that our current societal, social, emotional landscape seems to be setting in setting roots into the ability to process and access information like extremely fast. Right? So we have information just at the whim. Um, it's it's funny one of the one of the hip hop artists I've been into lately, Locksmith. He has this line where he said, uh, "He's like the our our standard for literacy is a Google search," and I'm like, "Whoa!" Um, you know, so you pair that with the development in technology, and we have all the fixings to solve problems quickly, and that's like I think something that is our human brains are just managing to catch up to, and you know. And we have this strong desire to fix problems quickly. And, and I feel like we've created this can fix it kind of culture because mm -hmm. of this access to information. Mm -hmm. You know, secondly, among the many information based uh, aspects of our lives, we have it readily accessible to our practice and learning in early childhood education. Mm -hmm. You know, what is it that I'm referring to is the sort of research based practices, right? And I'll rattle off some names and maybe in the chat box, everybody, you can type a Y for yes or an N for no. Uh, if you've heard of these names or, you know, if you haven't, John Piaget, Eric Erickson, Yuri Bronfenbrenner. <laughs> Look at all those yes. <laughs> yeah, also my Lev Bygotsky, <laughs> John Bowlby. <laughs> I'll stop there and I could go on and on and on and on. <laughs> what do all these people have in common? Uh, names only you can probably pronounce. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. Here we go. People are getting it. They're all white men. There you go. And sure, there's a few, you know, European women uh, sprinkled in there, here and there. Um, but, yeah, they're all old white men. And, you know, calling this out isn't necessarily to diminish their work and contributions. 
But to get us think about the sort of standard of what is developmentally aligned, right? Essentially, this is that white lens, I think, that you were sort of speaking to, the white center cultural practice in which many high quality centers, quote, unquote. I love that now everybody could see us like do our quotes. Yeah, right? Because we're all, you know, <laughs> over the podcast, we're all, we're doing this. Part of that. Um, you know, so all these high quality center based approaches that, uh, that we're, that we're talking about. And I think, you know, and so now what do we do? So what about that observation? You know, what, well, I think just, acknowledging that in our centers and in our practices that our best practices and approaches are research-based curriculums and rec uh and you know we need to recognize where they're coming from and actively seek out other forms of gathering information on children right that storytelling piece i think that's what's important about learning stories mm. um the you know these best intentions and practices inevitably hit a wall and I think that's what we're realizing now, too. It's this very blaring wall that's in our face um, that the system wasn't built for us. And this is what you were, you know, you talk about a lot, Mike. And, you know, our uh, a lot of the times our best intentions often become lop lopsided by expert opinions and perspectives. Mm -hmm. And I believe for a while these well-meaning intentions have been pressured by society. And that society is centered in whiteness. And then it filters down to people of color and other marginalized people. And the third last thing I want to touch on is that gender aspect, you know, in, um, in terms of like breaking the cycle. Hopefully this will link back into your initial question. I forgot it already. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess that aspect of like assessment, right? Like we have to really consider who is consistently being assessed. It, you know, I did a little quick research and, you know, a random national sample of over 4,000 state funded preschools, boys were four times as likely to be expelled from preschool than girls. Expelled, Mike. <laughs> I'm with you. I'm like, who, like, I, it's, I'm still like, after so many like years in education, I'm like, how? When I hear about expulsions and suspensions in preschool, I often think about how, and I know this may sound cold, and, and how inept an educator must be or how inadequate a center is to just go right to kicking a kid out. And, you know, your job is to help a child navigate their feelings and to understand where they're coming from. And because these behaviors are a reflection of many, you know, of, of a need, you know, behaviors aren't just random. And I don't want to get too worked up. <laughs> I already feel myself getting, and I know I'm generalizing and I know I'm speaking at this like 10,000 foot level or whatever. Um, but there are, and, and there are many slices to this pie, I know. But if that little research is an indicator of anything, it's the lack of understanding in the physiological development mm -hmm. with in young boys, right? And I don't think a lot of people have that understanding of what's going on with the body and the brain. Um, and when you connect that to the cultural context that we often, you know, end up seeing boys being put in, we, we end up seeing them being put into this deficit uh, framework and ex of expectations. And, and I think, it goes, 
I, oh, go I, ahead, Mike. I think it's okay to be, you know, angry because I haven't ate today and I'm I'm hangry right now. So, you know, um, but you mentioned something, uh, you mentioned two things, right? You mentioned learning stories and then you, you mentioned something I always say, the system wasn't built for us. So that kind of goes back. I'm going to shamelessly plug the conference that we're doing, the conference that I'm putting on in, in Seattle in June, 2021, the learning stories conference. And that's the actual theme I, 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 um, I'm making a poem. So the theme of the conference is the system wasn't built for us. And I was super intentional in picking those words since we're talking about language, right? Because I want to remind people that the educational system, like we like to say it's failing BIPOC, which is black indigenous people of color. And I'm like, no, the system isn't failing us, right? Because it was never meant to include BIPOC people (laughs) to begin with. So how can a system do that? So when I say the system wasn't built for us, I mean, we, we need to go about this business of, of child care in November, no, it's not November, in, in October 2020, right? And, and beyond with this mentality that we need to abolish and start anew. So last week, you and I were actually in a training together that I organized through our educator discussion series. And the training was on trauma-responsive leaders and organizations. And the facilitator, the facilitator, Victoria, says something that really stuck with me. And it was something like, if your organization hasn't updated your values in the last five years, then you need to. Mm-hmm. Because the values you created were specific to the people in that building. It was meant for the children you served at that time. And many of them have moved on. They've graduated. And you know those values might not resonate or be as important to the new group of leaders or educators or children or families in your organization today. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that. And that, um, that really stuck with me as well. And, you know, and I think it's super important for socially geared organizations like schools, you know, that they run diagnostics checks on themselves. Hmm. And, you know, in a different episode, I'll I'll talk about diagnostics checks a, a little bit later. I think, with the indigenizing um, uh, education piece. Um, but this checks and balance practice, I, you know, should and must include all members of the organizational community, like families and children, right? Yeah, and, and, you know, that can be applied since I think we started this, this kind of strand on assessments, right? I think that can also be applied here to different assessments and frameworks we have, you know, so I'm always going to urge participants today who are listening, as well as just everyone out there, to go and ask questions like, when's the last time our assessments, our frameworks, our observation tools were updated? You know, were they updated and adapted to meet the various cultural needs of the children we serve today? (laughs) What data, you know, do we have that supports the fact that these tools we are using are actually effective for children of color. So, you know, these are just a couple of things that are that are coming up from, that are coming off the top of my mind. And you know, it's because I'm an agitator, man. I like asking questions. I like going deep. Um, and you know, I like stirring. I like stirring up trouble. You know, like the light, the late John Lewis said, "Getting good trouble, necessary trouble." So, yep. for me, questioning a system, protocols, your your leadership team who are upholding um, these said systems is so necessary today. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I guess kind of carrying on with this assessment mm-hmm. thread, 
we must ask our families and caregivers. We've got to be proactive about that, right? You know, mm-hmm. we have to ask families and caregivers in our organizations to contribute to building up uh, assessment frameworks. And especially with our multi multilingual families and our and, and especially our, our families of color. Uh, you know, I think fa- finding out what language makes sense to them in a cult, you know, when asking these assessment questions, like finding out what that verbiage is, um, you know, are the questions we ask and observations that we're going to make as educators, are they going to make sense within that cultural context? Uh, the language we use with them is, you know, again, like very important as it is with the with children. And just thinking about both of our parents, how my mom tried to impart Spanish on me with me mm-hmm. and how yours were immigrants. Mm-hmm. I feel like there's a lesson that could be learned right there around just communicating with parents and carving out context that feel culturally responsive. Right. And so how do you think, Mike, we can like effectively communicate with families who might be mm-hmm. reluctant around sending a child to a therapist mm-hmm. you know, or how could we, as early childhood people provide context that makes sense to them. And while like, because I, you know, I don't want to encourage people to kind of be like a used car salesperson, right? Trying to pitch this idea of like, no, let, let me convince you why you, you, your child needs this service. So I'm curious what you think about what that delicate balance is. You know, I'm, I'm, if you haven't picked up yet, you know, I'm super against labeling children. Um, you know, labeling them as ADHD or special or, or whatever. And I, I guess I got to give it up to Hilltop because they really kind of helped me frame my thinking uh, around, you know, staying clear from quote unquote positive labels such as princess or beautiful because these labels, they, they stick <laughs> with children like wet cement. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I'm thinking about just a couple of weeks back. We had one child uh, one day who didn't want to say good morning to me um, as I greeted them at the door. And I remember her father just just briefly saying, right, just off slip of the tongue was just like, oh, are you being shy today? And every day since then, she has repeated that same pattern and has said, oh, I'm shy. And it takes me forever to welcome her inside the building. And I just feel like we basically could find this child who who was a delight, who was full of energy to this particular behavioral behavior and to this particular role. Yeah. Or like when, you know, cute behavior doesn't fly, you know, they realize in the real world, like, oh, well, this cuteness was okay with this set of grownups, but these other grownups aren't (laughs) having anything to do with it. Um, You know, and it, and then it, it sort of implores the child to like seek out other tactics of whatever they're trying to accomplish. Um, and I think sometimes like, like this shy example, it gives children uh, an ex- like sort of a, an excuse to opt out of interaction or to, to do something that I guess, you know, could, could be perceived as like pro-social or whatever. Yeah, precisely, man. Um yeah, as I try to make this attempt from like that left field turn that I just made, um, and I actually answer your question, I'm I'm really going to double down and, and kind of say again that when you're looking to support families and disclose that 
they might need to be referred. You know, I'm, I'm really encouraging people to take a step back and let's take an even closer look at our assessment models that we are using before we actually label a child and, and apply a, an often deficit narrative to them. So yes, I totally understand that you have to, you have to obtain crucial information, right? About the child's developmental progress and you have to balance that with the values that these families are having, you know, you know, by bypassing or glossing over family cultures is not only you disregarding families as an expert of their child, but you're also possibly working to increase this opportunity gap for children of color. And I'm not sure if there's any kindergarten age teachers out there listening right now, but, you know, the other day I heard someone say, what, finally I could use, right, my, um, what is it, elephant ears? Funny ears, right? <laughs> um, I heard one educator say what children normally learned at preschool. And it blew my mind because, once again, we're just assuming that all children went to preschool. I don't know about y'all, but preschool is expensive as hell <laughs> and it's not required. So, you know, my, a child might not have had a group care experience, which is why they might be exhibiting certain tendencies or might be, or might find it hard sharing or regulating themselves in group care, you know. But in terms of how do we actually communicate with families who might be reluctant, as I'm trying to, you know, <laughs> bring this all together. I just feel like it's our jobs as ECE professionals that we meet families where they are. And there are multiple things um, to consider when you're communicating them. So I know when I'm in the presence of BIPOC elders, I'm constantly thinking of just like linguistic and cultural considerations when I'm with them. So, and I think the same thing could be applied here. And, and questions that I'm always thinking of are like, how do I greet this family member? Yeah. Um, who, who should I speak with when I'm discussing serious matters? Um, you know, you mentioned earlier gender. So I'm thinking about generational and I'm thinking about gender differences. Mm-hmm. As well as some cultures actually attribute credibility and respect based off one person's attire. So those are just a couple of the things that I'm thinking of, man. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I think what you're, what you're demonstrating and, and, and illustrating with your thinking is this ability and necessity for educators, especially in early childhood, to to have a flexible mindset, right? And to really think about what are some other ways to go about this. And we have some wonderful comments in the chat box. I was noticing, you know, reframing our language to right. think like uh, Car- Carrie Kraut had said, you know, well, aren't you being observant, you know? Because we do need observant children, and you know, to re, um, and maybe that could be re, uh, you could use that sort of verbiage when, when a child's noticing somebody's skin color or something, and you just kind of, and then you scaffold it from there, right? Um, Shannon Nagy said, you know, shared observations that value the parent perspective at least as much, if not more, than that of the educator is one way to be- begin conversations that lead to a recommendation for further assessment. So, yeah, I think that's great, too, is, you know, really relying on the parent perspective first before the educator. That's, you know, I, I know some educators that that might make, like, cringe a little bit. But, you know, sometimes we have to put a, put aside our teacher, teacher ego and, 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 and know that our work is dependent on a, a, a guardian perspective, if you will. 
you know, and in, in that just speaks to the fact that we need to address the inherent mistrust of the process, the mistrust communities of color have in in a white supremacist system, which includes our education system. So one way that I can see is mitigating some of this is through the use of what I call cultural brokers. You know, so you know that 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 homie you got that can help you link and bridge the gaps between cultures. Yeah. And, you know, you can also adopt and start using cultural screening tools, being cognizant of the language you're using. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, some of these languages that families speak, they have their own unique structure and communication style, like, you know, being direct or not direct, um, you know, and that gender component of who do you talk to about these things. And, you know, that could be so very different from our, English-based speaking culture. And I think it's important to point out that right now we're talking about how to engage with the adults that are in the child's life, right? Not necessarily how to engage with the child, but we must also, I think, apply, and, and I hope this makes sense, apply that lens to when we see that adult interact with that child, mm-hmm. you know, especially when it's from a different culture. Um, because what we consider best practice, it might be different than what they consider best practice, right? And so I think when we see those exchanges between families and, and their children, um, I think a lot of our openness shuts down because of a, a cultural clash of what is best practice. Um, and, and your point about a cultural broker reminds me that in some way we educators are brokers in the child's development and education to the families and caregivers of the children that we're with. Yet educators are not always equipped to have a cultural broker for them from them to the family and the caregiver, right? We don't have someone helping us relate to the family usually. And so we're kind of, you know, that's that cultural broker you were talking about. Um, go ahead. Yeah, no, I, I was just going to say, man, I, you know, the onus is is on us as educators, as EC professionals to connect with families. It, it, sh- it shouldn't be the other way around. So even when families ignore you, say they don't trust you, they disregard you, whatever it may be, it's, it's still on us to reach out and make these connections. But, you know, I'm just looking at the time. We've talked a lot. <laughs> so I really want to open it up to maybe one or two questions, um, thoughts. I know we got, I, I still got more questions for you, Nick. So I, I want to give a chance for anyone to really unmute themselves or go into the chat box. And after you unmute yourself, just let, let us know how you identify. So that could be Latinx, that could be Chamorro, that could be Serbian, Ethiopian, white, Afro. Um, so, but I want to give that opportunity for, for people right now. So questions, thoughts, don't be shy. This is Karen. Yes. Um, I, what I, some of the things I gleaned from your conversation today is when we talk about pretty and cute, and I'm saying to myself as a mother of two daughters and then two granddaughters. Um, I want my girls and my 
young women to identify with their inner beauty and with their um, confidence that they can be whatever they want to be. And it doesn't center around the outer look or cuteness, but the inner um, giving of themselves to others, especially with COVID and all this. I want them to see the beauty that is beyond the exterior, the interior beauty. Mm. Yeah, thanks for sharing that, Karen. And, you know, often when I first, when it was a, one of my old co-teachers and I, when we uh, first kicked off this diligent campaign of decuting with children, it was, you know, a lot of questions was like, why, why, why can't we call them this? It's not, it's a compliment. It's like, but because that's, that's the, the problem is that it happens so much in their life, right? So if we can ha- give them an early experience as their teachers with them, it's why not do- why not reframe reframe it to to their inner beauty to their inner their inner strengths and because they're going to get that so much throughout their lifetime and and as we know our 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 society western society in the united states is heavily rooted in a materialistic consumerism that does focus on people's superficial exteriors and it begins as early as early childhood when we call them cute and you know and one and at a certain age they like for the most part most of us we stopped being called cute and then it's like what happened we got all this empty praise and then and then it just went off you know what does that say what does that do to our like sense of self man and this is why you know my i think my opening statement or my opening story just about how we don't call children cute or when a child comes up to our program they go oh look at my painting do you like it we always refer back to it we go actually oh well how does that make you feel right so we flip it so if they go well it makes me feel great oh well if it makes you feel good then it makes me feel good rather than looking for this external outside validation on oh mike thinks it's pretty then then it must be good, right? Because it's a binary notion. Children at the age of five are really coming to grasp it. Or, you know, <laughs> you can sort of play the the devil's advocate or critical friend to that toddler or preschooler bringing up a painting. You can be like, eh, I don't know. I've seen you do some other work that was a little more elaborate. <laughs> this one's okay. <laughs> you don't have to be, like, complimentary all the time. <laughs> Love it. So what else are people thinking or, or what, what else is coming up? Yeah, go ahead, Heather. Yeah, I was just going to mention, I think it's valuable for us to um, recognize that we don't put value on what kids say either. So, for example, even my grandson the other day to my daughter said, Mama, you're so pretty. And she paused and said, obviously, she's my kid, so I've trained her in this way. But she said, well, what does pretty mean to you? And he said, well, Mama, you're kind to people. Mm. So it was important that that was a value of the language he's heard so far. So what did it mean to him? Um, But I did want to ask a quick question. So I have many men in my program as teachers and administrators and students. It's and very diverse cultures here in Pullman in our program. But I think sometimes I have challenge when parents are not used to that. And I'm like, well, what do you mean that man's going to be teaching my children or caring for my toddler? 
So I, do you guys have a moment just to speak to that a little bit of how we, you know, use that narrative of what, a, you know, uh, from your perspective, what kind of yeah. thing? You know, um, that's something a couple of groups that I'm pretty heavily involved in, and that's that's pretty pretty standard across the board in our nation. And one of the most effective ways is just to open up that conversation of like, well, what is it that makes you uncomfortable? And I and I find just starting just sort of flicking that process to get the ball rolling, then the families can start self processing and realizing like oh, this is a me thing. And, you know, we we can rarely has it ever really gone beyond that once they're like, oh, okay. But I think it's a matter of at least us as the uh, the practitioners and, and the male, males into in the uh, early childhood field is for them to remain curious, right? To approach it with curiosity and openness and not be defensive and, and not, and, and it's hard. I, I know it's, it's hard for me to not like just step on the soapbox and be like, this is why and blah, 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 blah. But it's, it's, a, I think approaching it with curiosity has been the, uh, in my experience, the most effective with it. And, you know, really just letting them know that. And then eventually you can start opening up the avenues of how this is a societal issue and that across the board, wouldn't it be great that everybody is expected to do the same to have the same capabilities and jobs and, and, and whatever. I don't know. I hope that makes sense. I would just piggyback off of that. I, we usually give parents to Nick first because I am much more like, you don't you dare say that. Like I, I'm the complete opposite in, in my approach, but I usually um, just, I usually bring up two things. Um, the first one just, left me. But one of the other things that I usually just bring up is, and I ask them, how many male figures do you actually have in your lives who who are caring for young children? And then they, you know, they sit there and they pause and they think, and I'm like, well, wouldn't you want a, a male um, positive experience so that they can see that there's not, it's that there's not one way of being as a male? And then they go, well, yeah, you know, and I go, well, there it is. And if you don't like that, this is the second point that I usually say, um, which is why we give them to Nick first to answer that question is, well, if you don't like it, there's another childcare program down the street. Yeah. Like you're not bound to come here, but if you are going to come at Hilltop, this is what you are going to expect. You're going to have to expect and be okay with males changing diapers you're going to have to expect that. We are going to talk about penises and vaginas. You're going to also have to expect that, you know, if the child comes to us and, and they go, should we build a wall or what sex? Or, you know, um, why does this person go by he, him, but, or they, them, and, but they look like a boy? Right? These are conversations because we're going to validate children's feelings and who they are. And don't be afraid or don't be surprised that when it's the middle of October and they're three and they come home at night and they start talking about this and that, <laughs> don't be surprised, which they always then come back and, you know, afterwards and they say, well, um, well, we're feeling really uncomfortable doing that. And I say, hey, remember that first conversation I had with you in August, right before you signed your contract? 
this is where it's going to play out. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for supplementing that, Mike. And, you know, the, and I think when in that self process of conversation with families, you can start seeing the bubble or the, uh, the light bulb get brighter and brighter as they realize like, Oh yeah, this is, this is one simple way to sort of remedy a lot of, of the, uh, issues that we're facing as a society, right? It's simple representation of multiple identities. And one of the biggest slogans of one of the groups that I work with is expect male involvement. If we don't expect it, then it's not going to happen. We'll be right back. Hilltop Children's Center is a high-quality preschool after-school program and Professional Development Institute of Early Learning and Inquiry, serving the Seattle community since 1971. Together, we are working with the next generation of inventors, leaders, thinkers, artists, and social activists. For more information on our professional development and community outreach, including workshops, presentations, blogs, coaching and consulting, and of course, this NAPCAST, please visit www.hilltopcc.org. I got to give you an appreciation in front of all these people, Mike. I love doing this with you. And, and it kind of makes me sad that we're not, you know, in the same room like we usually are together, but that's all right. You know, usually we're, you know, sharing our content ideas before jumping on the NAPCAST and like, and I often think like, whoa, that's what I'm thinking too. And Mike is saying it. No, I think we got this good like balance of each other. So thank you. I appreciate you for that. Um, love brother. You know, and, one of the ideas that when you were talking earlier uh, that popped into my head that gave me that sentiment was, was that, that idea of a, of a broker, you know, or cultural broker and stirring. And, and it, and it reminded me of an interaction that I had at daybreak. Cause now that I'm at daybreak star, um, I was out on the playground and, and I was playing with some kids and, you know, like I said, my Spanish isn't all that great, but it's good to it. It's conversational with, with kids <laughs> now it, you know they speak at a good pace with me and i can understand them and i have the same pace as them and so i was speaking spanish with this four-year-old girl and trying to hone in my skills and she could tell i wasn't keeping up with her and sometimes she'd just be like ah and then she would slow down like an adult would and talk to me like this but in spanish it was pretty great um and, and then there was this little boy a four-year-old boy who was also watching and he just was like going between our faces and like seeing that we're communicating and he came up and he goes, Hey, this, this isn't Spanish school. And, you know, thankfully I have like experience to, to lean back on and not get so reactive and, and get on that soapbox and blah, 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 listen to this child. And, uh, and I said, Oh, well, what, what is the school called? And he said, daybreak. And I said, okay. And then I, you know, I, what did I say? I said something like, Oh, I wonder if you're you're thinking about me and so and so speaking Spanish just now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm like oh yeah, you know what? I learned that at daybreak there's a lot of languages spoken. You know, and I, I motioned to the sign above the outdoor kitchen there, and in it in and it said kitchen in the uh which is the ancestral language of the Duwamish people here in Seattle. And I was like, do you want to tell her your name? And, and he was like, yeah. I was like, okay, so we went through like, oh, me amo, 
so-and-so. And we went through that several times until he got a hang of it. And it made me so happy because now every time I'm on the playground, he'll run up to me and be like, hey, how do I say I'm, I'm your little dog? Or let's play. Or do you want to run? And he just needed that a cultural broker, right? Because he wanted to play with this person. But he knew he didn't have the, uh, I guess, the, what, the cultural currency to have the exchange or whatever. Yeah. So I got to, you know, be that cultural broker. And so it was, it was, you know, and I think that's one of those things that we have to check our, within ourselves as educators is not like, oh, here's a learning opportunity to like decolonize this kid and to like get him to recognize where his, um, his bias is showing. It's like, no, 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 let's look. There's, again, this is where behavior is a need. And his need was to communicate. And the behavior was like, hey, this isn't Spanish school. Yeah, of course, that sounds offensive. But that's not what he intended. I literally, I was just going to, before you went on to that, I had a question for you. But then I, you hit me with like that Ural step with that story with that antidote. So now, honestly, I'm going to scrap that question I was thinking of. And I'm really just interested in hearing about kind of the different languages you have at Daybreak. So um, I should probably put that into a form of a question. Um, or what is a form of a question? Anyways, <laughs> so how have you, like you've personally as, as an educator, now as a director, have increased children's colleagues staff really your overall programs uh awareness of indigenous languages well i mean actually mike yeah it's been the other way around you know i've only been there a month now and um and i'm learning something even greater than i could have imagined you know with every interaction the uh, the awareness of pride and generational strength in that pride fills the space in such a way that that the sense of belonging and affirmation linger, like just in that building. You walk into it and you can just feel it. And I'm becoming more familiar with, you know, what mother tongue each family speaks. You know, like you said, there's multiple languages. There's Lashutsi, there's um, there's Russian, there's Somalian, there's uh, Spanish. And yeah, there's all kinds of languages being spoken. Specifically, though, the programming piece that I think you're talking about you know, once we get out of COVID, you know, there's going to be a big powwow at the center and it's going to be, oh, it's going to be bouncing. And, you know, Daybreak will be celebrating big and no, no doubt. And that's something I'm really looking forward to is just seeing the community just explode with this gratitude of being together. Mm. And, you know, once we settle down from that and return back to whatever normalcy is post COVID, uh, convening with the community and talking about key holidays that are, you know, community and culturally relevant will be really important, an important task for me. And I'd really love to see how to connect the preschool program to something like our elders program, you know, get their input on the key holidays. How did they celebrate it? You know, what was it like for them as a child? Um, you know, for our work as educators, connecting relationships is something that we're pretty good at. And bringing that intergenerational piece is incredibly important. Um, and so I feel like I have this opportunity to do that. And, you know, this encourages actionable steps towards cultural and linguist linguistic revitaliz uh, revitalization. 
I feel like what you just said feels like you got a whole IEP plan <laughs> before the program, and and I'm I'm in love with it, <laughs> and I'm and I say that because mostly I'm a proponent that I believe every child should have an IEP plan, an individual educational plan, and just given the topic today, um, I guess I'm just interested in hearing. How does how does a preschool educator or you know you were a toddler educator for the last decade, in given the the rapid losses of languages, the rapid losses of culture around the world, how do you like implement an IEP plan for a specific child that supports their home language and their home culture? Yeah, and I like your reclamation of of uh, IEP because I think I know for myself. Uh, going through the education system and maybe for a lot of people, I think IEP see it sort of associated with um, special education and, and, you know, learning disabilities and differences and, you know, something I guess framed as a, as something in the deficit. I don't know. Yeah. Better words. Um, you know, I think first they're obviously like, like, and some people mentioned it in the chat, we have to create partnership with the families, you know, and we have and or caregiving unit of the fam- uh, of the child, and really asking them what sort of books could the class look into, including uh, that are important to their culture and language, including instruments. Maybe provide a cheat sheet of common phrases and requests, uh, numbers, things like that. Um, you know, the, you know, ha- I mean, we all know our phrases that we are broken record to with kids. Go wash your hands. Pick that up, or don't hit this or whatever, you know, um, you know, so figuring out those. So, and I love it when I, when I bust out some child's, uh, home language and there's like, Whoa, like, wait a minute, (laughs) how'd you know that? And, um, like that was like that, like one of our, uh, one of my old raindroppers, uh, I don't know if I should say his name, but you know who I'm talking about. Korean and one of the only ways I could get him to go to sleep, I was like, Koja ne, Koja. And he just like would laugh himself to sleep with it. And and it was just so funny because that's what his mom would tell him in Korean. Um, but I think, you know, just being real and asking families which holidays they celebrate, you know. Don't just assume the Indian family in your class celebrates holy just because they speak Hindi. Um, like ask them. You know, what can we replicate in the classroom? And then first and foremost, hold yourself accountable to doing it. Um, And I think, too, it would be beneficial to ask, how do they want you to treat and communicate with their child in regards to uh, matters of respect for the adults? You know, asking, you know, do you ask or do you just tell them what to do rather than asking? Uh, You know, providing... Obviously, another one I think is that often gets overlooked is providing communications for families in their preferred language um, and really just find that, that again, a process of op- uh, accountability that keeps you practicing that home language. And if it's easy, just assign one. If you have a multiple teaching team, maybe one teacher take it on to hold themselves accountable. Mm. What do you think? Yeah, yeah, you know. So I'm, I'm sorry. I was looking at the time. I was like, can I ask another question? I'm gonna, I'm gonna pause real quick and let's see if there's any actually questions um, from the audience or thoughts 
that uh yeah. to share. And if you well, wanted to point out that one or one um message in the chat, you know, that was that's one that I definitely overlooked was calling adults by their first names versus title and last name. You know, I know some centers like to, you know, oh go talk to Mr. Mike or Mr. Nick or or such and such. Any any yeah. thoughts, questions, what's resonating with anyone? What are what are things that you're like, absolutely not. We always love a good yeah. <laughs> yeah, we get too many compliments. <laughs> Speak for yourself. <laughs> I think it's um, sorry, I don't mean to jump right in. This is Heather again from WSU. Um, so we, like I said, we're very rich in, in cultures and, and languages and, and diverse families here in our little town. Um, and so I thought I was doing such a nice job of making the big welcome sign on the wall. You know, it's got four, ordered it on Amazon, but it's got like 40 different languages and everything's great. First family walks in, looks at it and smiles. Second family walks in and goes, um, we're not up there. Yeah. And, what? Like, <laughs> And so the first reaction, I wanted to get defensive instead of, you know, seriously, maybe a thank you. Instead, I went to, well, hey, could you email, could you write it and email it? We'll get someone with a cricket so they can make it out of vinyl and stick it up there. So then we just added a plaque. If, if your family's language is not represented, it, let us know so we can keep adding to our wall. But I think it's important for us not to feel like we've done all we should, but instead to be very inclusive and welcoming and ask those questions. So. Mm -hmm. Um, and then we've used Zoom a lot to have parents, since they can't come in the building anyway, they can Zoom read The Very Hungry Caterpillar in whatever language they speak comfortably. Um, and the kids love it because even though they, you know, they're turning the page and getting comfortable, it's really a unique way to get the families to come in um, and do that. You know, hearing that reminded me of of one thing, and it was, or two things. So when we a lot of things that we create in terms of welcoming signs, and maybe Nick can attest to this a little bit more, is that we actually invite families in to co-create um, some of our signs and our banners because that that's you know two birds and one stone. Like you get to get their native language in their their histories and their stories, as well as also another opportunity to have that kind of that authentic family connection that we're always talking about, that we're always seeking. So like inviting them to be a part of the process is such is such a great way um, rather than, and, and I know it's easy just to get it off of Amazon, but like taking the time and creating a night in which they can actually be a part of their the process. And then, um, you know, the kids are going to be so happy to be like, hey, I made that with such and such. Um, so it's a beautiful thing. And another thing that we also do at Hilltop is we yes we have we try not to have um languages posted or even in like in our enrollment we we have our enrollment in spanish we have it in french we have it in portuguese but that's because those are the languages that we speak within our center so we could actually print it out in arabic but there's no one in our center that speaks it right so 
yes, we're predominantly English-based, but I think it's always important to be cognizant that you aren't setting yourself up for failure because if that family who only speaks Arabic comes back to us and was like, oh, hey, I have questions about this, there'll be no way for us to translate that back and forth um, rather than using Google Translate. But I'm more of a Bing guy. I don't know about y'all. <laughs> Bing. <laughs> <laughs> You got anything to add on onto that, Nick? No, I mean, uh, you know, I was just going to add in, uh, but it's all, you know, hampered by COVID. <laughs> you know, just like potlucks and stuff like that. But yeah. All right. Another question, thoughts? You know, um, Actually, I think it's uh, just to kind of point it out. I think uh, one other languages that often get um, overlooked are, you know, sign language and, and Braille. Mm-hmm. So even you know, just including those, um, I, it, yeah, I'm just gonna put that out there. All right. What about you, Nick? Do you got any other questions for me? Oh yeah. Um. I remember you had told me a little while ago that before coming to Hilltop, you know, it, it seems like you went down in age or, or like you went in the reverse order. And uh, so you, you, you worked in after school programs, school age programs, teens, you know, like when and where was this? And, and I know you want me to do another. I know you kind of wanted me to plug in another presentation you have. Yeah, reflective dialogue and disrupt uh, to disrupt racial realities, <laughs> you know, and, and that you speak to like how educators need to better understand children's cultural capital, their cultural wealth and their cultural funds of knowledge. Can you break that down for us and sort of your, your history of of where you applied that? So, um, a smooth, right? <laughs> Thanks. Uh, B, I was really hoping you actually didn't have another question. Um, but sure. I So I started my career in like college age, then I moved down to high school, and then after school programs, and now with toddlers. Um, but in terms of how I broke that, you know, the cultural capital and cultural wealth, um, I'll just give you a little taste because, you know, this, this is a presentation. This is how I make my money. So can't can't give out too much but basically what i mean what i mean by all of this is basically children and families they come to you already steeped in not just like one or two years of culture they're steeped in centuries of cultures generations of culture and it's something that we constantly need to remind ourselves that we need to honor because children have a wealth of knowledge of ways of being of speaking of acting and when we think of culture, I, I usually feel like we pigeonhole it mm-hmm. to like the usual suspects, you know, religion, uh, cooking, uh, language. But I feel like we also never really think about how culture influence or is influence um, everything, everything from technology, everything from our agriculture, everything to politics you know there's a debate tonight politics to to our economics 
in uh, I just our, our cultural funds of knowledge are so vast. It includes everything from the concept of fairness to the the notions of modesty, um, to our body language, to to the importance of space. And I feel like I'm always telling my colleagues to back the hell away from me. <laughs> you know, don't sneak up on me. I'm gonna fight you. I'm from New York, right? So that's my culture, we're like, yo, we meet our space. <laughs> This is where that cultural broker would come in handy. <laughs> yeah, you know, our, our cultural capital is is how we define and shape our educational experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's just a, an array of knowledge, skills, and abilities, in in context possessed and and used by communities of color to survive and to resist racism and other forms of oppression. Yeah. I keep yeah. looking up because that. That quote is actually on my wall. Yeah. <laughs> so, can I, um, can I interject for a moment? Yeah, yeah. Like all this that you're you're um, that you're bringing up, it reminds me of that the uh, the New Zealand curriculum of Te Barhiki, mm. right? Yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah, that's just what was popping into my mind. Absolutely, man. And with with that curriculum, it's. What's so cool about that is is that it's not the cookie cutter approach. You know, this this cookie cutter approach is something that we've tried in our educational system in the United States, in well, from the beginning of time, <laughs> and now we're sitting here in 2020, and all of us are panicking because we're realizing back to the theme of the, the conference. The system wasn't built for us, so. You know, based off of all the readings and things that I work on, you know, I really emphasize this process, especially when you're working with children. This is a process for us. Like, we have to understand the children. And then we have to move to uncover what they're going through. So that's why observation is so important. This is why you have to talk to the children and analyze their classwork. You know, really observe what forms of capital are is present with them. Then you have to move to identify, and then you have to have this growth mindset, and then you have to actually learn and apply <laughs> what you're doing. Um, so trying to connect that to to school age program, you know, uh, I really think about the homie we had in our class a couple of years ago who was Puerto Rican and black, and they were struggling to to understand math concepts. So that's nothing new. <laughs> There's something you hear children say all the time. I hate math. I'm not good at math. But with this kid, they were actually really good at mathematical concepts a year before. So what we have to do using this kind of like this process is we have to understand what changed. Turns out, you know, they didn't like the way we were presenting the materials. And it also helps that they didn't like the educator. So, you know, um, but in order to really support this kid, we we took through this process. Like we had to observe ways that they were engaged in their learning through play, through their afternoon enrichment classes. And what we saw was that when they were immersed in an experience, their brilliance shone, was was bright. You know, it shone through not just giving them a piece of paper and saying, here, do this mathematical concept. So we have to identify what is important in 
what is of value in the lives of these students? And uh, how, how does that enrich the lessons in the classroom? How do we draw upon their funds of knowledge and their different forms of capital? So it can't just be us doing what we always do because that's the way the previous kid or, or class learned. This particular kid loved dramatic play. That's what was important to them. And the child goes by they, them now. So that's why I'm like them, right? Um, but so so really in order to do this work, we're going to have a growth. We have to have a growth mindset in this work. And we're by observing and checking our own biases and by having a growth mindset, we switched our curriculum. We were able to create math equations through stories, through dramatic play. And we were able to connect um, all of this to economic issues his, their family, excuse me, were facing, humanitarian issues back in PR. Um, and then suddenly math was like the easiest subject to this kid again. So, you know, that's all I got, man. There, there are many ways children across all ages, they, they utilize the various forms of cultural wealth, um, funds of knowledge, and we're just, I just feel like, you know, sorry for all the professors out there listening right now, but we're not taught to connect this portion of the child, this important part of their identity. We're not taught to connect this knowledge with learning because we're way too concerned with hitting our benchmarks or securing funding for our programs. Or, you know, some people are more concerned about being recognized as teacher of the year. But when we really center children's culture at the heart of what we do, then we can find meaningful ways to make learning meaningful for them. Nicely said, Mike. Um, yeah, and I'm just going to top that off, maybe bring us to a little bit of a closing, mm. by bringing it out a little bit beyond culture. Yeah. If you don't mind. You know, children's, children's time and experiences with us should reflect and honor the child's presence. And in those present moments, our language matters the most because how we speak to them becomes their inner voice. Full circle. All right. So that's all we got. Um, thank you once again for listening to another NAPCAST. We got time to, to field a couple more of y'all questions, thoughts, comments, um, words of affirmation, disagreements, aha moments. Uh, so we're just going to invite everyone to kind of just unmute themselves whenever they see, whenever they feel um, they're ready to. And we're, we're ready to answer a couple more questions for about five more minutes. Got a couple of thank yous in the chat. We were grateful for everyone for showing up, for being engaged. It's always so hard to do this, <laughs> especially in the middle of the day when you're hangry. <laughs> yeah, I took like a bite of a sandwich before we jumped on. I had a little bit of sustenance. I'm gonna encourage everyone to fill out the feedback forms. Um, thank you for listening, everyone. So, any other questions or thoughts? Yes, there is the learning series questions. Nick, I'm going to ask you to answer that question as I grab the link. Okay. 
Uh, what'd you say? <laughs> no. Oh, sorry. The question from Natasha. Do you have any resources for finding how to pronounce words outside of our native language? Uh, I mean, yeah, I've just been utilizing the good old Google. Um, I feel like there are like a, a pretty a, a good source of like reliable and, and uh, uh, repute, reputable uh, reputable sources out there on on Google. I, I can't think of any off the top of my head though. Gotcha. We can always once again email us at institute. At, let me write that back down, and we can always provide more resources. Um, in order to support everyone's learning and growth. Mike, I'm gonna throw that email address up on the website also under your guys' NAPCAST session. So if anyone loses it or needs to go back and find it, it'll be up there where you find the Zoom links and handouts so that they have that. Love it, love it. As well as, you know, hey, if anyone knows of any, we centralize for our NAPCAST, you know, we really centralize voices of color as well as male educators of color, male identifying educators of color. So I know Heather, you said you have a plethora of them. Um, you know, if anyone else knows of anyone who would love to be interviewed, we would love to have them uh, as well. Or if anyone on here, if you're a voice of color, we'd love to have you too. <laughs> All right, I think we are getting to that time. Yes, connect me. <laughs> I love talking. <laughs> All right, on that note, so Nick, I'm, I'm ready to head out. All right. All right, so thank you everyone. We appreciate you. We, we love being in, in relationship with you all and um, check out our next Snapcast coming out Monday. <laughs> yeah. And this one will be up too, right? Yes. In a, give me a couple of weeks. <laughs> yeah. We talked a lot. I got to edit some things out. <laughs> cool. All right, y'all. All right. Wash your hands, everybody. Take yes. care. Mask up. <laughs>